Welcome to Good Government Illinois podcast, Politics 101 with David Orr. Today, in our continuing series on the recent municipal elections, our guest is Ralph Martyr. To listen to this podcast and to hear our previous ones, uh, including guests like Jan Schakowsky, Alderman Maria Haddon, Alderman Scott Wagesback, author and former Alderman Dick Simpson, Delmarie Cobb and Dan Cohen, and others, please just check it out. Check us out on Spotify or our rss.com. Welcome, Ralph. Hey, David, how are you? Doing fine. Um, we're going to try and make complicated fiscal and revenue budget issues uh, sound somewhat intriguing, and maybe we can understand it more. So um, the background of this is with Ralph's health, we are going to address one of uh, major uh, the mayor-elect Johnson's key challenges how to fund Chicago's massive budget, and at the same time find revenue to pay for the initiatives he proposed uh, in during his campaign. Examples like helping young folks in a lot of different ways, mental health issues, affordable housing, and others. Um, and by the way, let's go, Ralph is the executive director for the Center for Tax and Budget Accountability. His bipartisan think tank advocates tax policies that are fair and equitable and pro promote opportunity for all. Obviously, um, that's a mighty hard task with our politics and in some cases. He's also the Rubloff Professor of Public Policy at Rosary University. Uh, he's had many legislative successes, including one we'll talk about later, the recent evidence-based model for schools, school funding. Uh, we'll also uh, be looking uh, to understand the role he plays in um, advocating some of these issues to political leaders, including governor's offices, mayor's office, as uh, elected officials across the board. Many articles and honors, which we're not going to all go into because we'd rather hear from him than just talk about them. So again, welcome, Ralph. Well, it's always great to be in a program with you, David. So where do you want to start? It's your show. Well, it's our show now, um, but let's, uh, let's start with an overview, okay, um, of when we're talking about funding, particularly the things that Brandon Johnson will face in the city of Chicago, where, where does most of the money that we go into what we call the Chicago budget, uh, where does that come from? Well, What's you know, I think we even have to talk about which Chicago budget we're talking about, right? Because yeah, the city of Chicago actually has five budgets. Uh, the one yes, that's most people talk about, David, is the corporate fund. That's the one that covers services. The vast majority of the money in the corporate fund goes to police, fire, streets, sands, and whatever human services the city provides. The city also has other budgets. It has the enterprise fund, which covers the airports. It has some special funds. It has grant funds. But, but the one that really most people understand as the general operating fund for the city of Chicago is its corporate. That fund last year had a balance of about $5.4 billion in it. That's billion with a B. And the revenue for it is sort of one of the tricky wickets that Mayor Johnson is inheriting. 
there's no one revenue source that accounted for even 16% of the total money coming into the city of Chicago's budget. And that number one revenue source of all things was something called proceeds and transfers in. And if you understand what that is, you're a great American, as 99.9% of the world would not. But what's really included in that primarily is what used to be their sales tax revenue. A few years back, I think it was 2017, the state and the city sold that off to the sales tax securitization corporation in exchange for some money up front, and it still sees received some residual revenue from it. You go from that, the second biggest revenue source for the city is the, are the transaction taxes, about 15% of all their revenue. And that's real estate transactions, leases of personal property, and leases of motor vehicles, those things that are taxed. The next biggest is, is something called internal service earnings. And these are sometimes chargebacks that, it does, that the corporate fund does to the other city funds, it's about 10%. And then you have the municipal public utility tax, the transportation taxes, some money from the state. So the bottom line is the city of Chicago, at least for its main operating fund, the corporate fund, really doesn't have a major tax-based revenue source that feeds it. And this is what complicates things for all mayors, right? If, if you're in a a difficult fiscal situation, there's no one magic spigot that you could turn on or go to to try to deal with fiscal problem. Everyone thinks that the property tax is sort of the biggest revenue source for the city, and it is, but it doesn't feed the corporate fund. A property tax revenue is used primarily to pay off the pension debt that the city's accrued over time. In fact, uh, last year, the city collected $1.7 billion in property taxes, used $1.4 billion of that to help cover its, its pension payment, which was about $2.6 billion last year. So there's a quick snapshot, and it, and it shows you why over time, the city's revenue sources, there are all these small little things, don't really grow with the economy. So that creates a structural imbalance between cost growth and revenue growth, which is always why the city is somewhat challenged in its financial operations. Although this year there was some good news, right? Well, also, um, you know, other states sometimes uh, have taxes, like well, even the kind of sales taxes they might have, they're picking what you might say more current things to tax that clearly are on, on generally rising. And there's where you get your increases gradually. Um, but so, um, it's it's kind of, it's not it's not a myth. There's still a large property tax, but as uh, so our, our listeners understand, that goes to a lot of different bodies. If you live in Cook County, because it goes to the transportation things, it goes to schools, it goes. In fact, over fifty percent of every um, dollar goes to the schools. So that money's all split up. So so it's not like oh the feds are giving us so much money, or the state is giving us so much money. And politically, because politics is inherent in all these things, often, almost always, when there's a Republican administration, either in Springfield or the federal government, uh, we in the city tend to get less because Republicans give more to their base, so to speak. And when there's Democratic leaders in those places, they generally tend to um, help the big cities, um, either because it's necessary or because there's, that's where the Democratic vote is in many cases. So yeah, that, that's very helpful. People understand that. Okay, now let's talk 
about one of the elephants in the room, and let's start with the schools. Um, given, like I said before, more than more than fifty cents out of every uh, you know real or at least you know property tax dollars going to the schools. One of the real challenges uh, we have both for this budget and overall, uh, even though there's a separate Chicago Public Schools budget, is that Illinois usually ranks fairly low, uh, often 48th, 49th, or 50 of all 50 states and how much they give right to the city of Chicago when you factor it all in. Uh, and of course, that can cause enormous problems and enormous inequities. So a town like Winnetka, or Skokie, places that have, you know, high income people um, and making a lot from the property taxes. And often they have a significant commercial base. It's much easier. Uh, so the this money they get from the schools is not their primary source. And so one of the long-term reforms, of course, um, in Illinois is to, is to give more. And one of the things I mentioned in the introduction is you worked on something called evidence-based ba evidence funding program. Uh, tell us about that and tell us about the schools and how they fit in. And is there any possibility we're gonna do better this year? Um, because whatever we can do and get help from others for schools, that does help us with the city budget as well. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's complicated. So I think it's really good that you brought this up. And first, I'll talk a little bit about the evidence-based funding formula and then the very complex relationship between CPS and the city and property taxes, because it, it's all interwoven, right? So first of all, a few years back, the state passed what's called the evidence-based formula for student success. And it's an entirely different way to fund public education. In the past, what the state of Illinois would do would say, all right, here's a dollar amount, we'll call it the foundation level, that we are gonna guarantee is the minimum amount each school district has per pupil. And this foundation level was based on nothing, as in not one single cost of actually educating kids. What it was predicated on was really what the state felt it could afford given its fiscal condition. Well, until this year, state's fiscal condition has been something other than healthy. Actually, in the last year due to some economic factors, and I'll talk about those in a second, state fiscal condition is about as good as it's been for three or four decades, actually. But bottom line is, for generations, David, and you correctly pointed this out, under that old formula, the state of Illinois radically underfunded K-12 education from state-based resources and pushed the primary obligation to fund those schools onto local property taxes. So it's really an, it created an interesting conundrum in Illinois. Now, overall, when you take every tax and every fee charged by any unit of state or local government in Illinois as a percentage of income, we have a low tax burden compared to the rest of the nation. We're always in the bottom third, uh, ranking around 35th, 36th, 37th in total state and local tax burden as a percentage of income. However, because we push so much responsibility onto the property taxes to fund schools, we always rank in the top two or three and property tax burden. So, you know, this is this is why our property taxes are so out of whack. Now, when the evidence-based funding formula passed, and I co-authored that legislation for Kim Lightford, a state senator, and Will Davis, a state rep, with a gentleman by the name of Mike Jacoby, it, it changed how the state funded education to really just invest in those practices which the researcher evidence show actually enhance student achievement over time. 
So what the what the model does is it identifies these research or evidence-based practices, there's about 27 of them. And then it identifies sort of average costs every school has to incur, like keeping the building clean, for instance, right? And it, it basically costs out all these factors for every school district predicated on its unique student population. So there's automatic adjustments in the model for the number of low income kids that a school educates, the number of special needs kids, uh, the number of English language learners. And bottom line is, after you run all these factors through the model, you come up with what's called the adequacy target for a school district. And that adequacy target is simply the dollar amount of resources a district needs to educate the specific kids that it serves based on the evidence of what works. Well, CPS, has seen an increase in its funding under the, the evidence-based funding formula since it's been law. It's been pretty significant. And now, you know, over 50% of the, of the city's uh, CPS's resources do come from state funding. It's a lot. It, well, it, they're operating funds, over two and a half billion. That's the Which good news. Works. The bad news is they're only 75% funded. So they still have a shortfall of $2,500 per student. And that's meaningful because the student population at CPS is 72% low income, 82% minority. So really, when CPS is short on resources, what that means is a significant number of low income and minority children are getting an inadequately funded education. So it's a completely separate budget, though, than the cities. And, right. and what they do is share revenue sources. So they share property taxes. Uh, they each make their levy and it comes out. And David, you correctly said about 53, 54% of the total property tax levy in Chicago goes to Chicago public schools. 27% of it goes to the city and the rest goes to like the county, the library, the park district, those kinds of things. So that's well, so one of the key, I was gonna say, so one of the key things that you're describing Okay, is with this new evidence-based formula, it's it's also more equitable. Um, yeah, very much because so. you know, just doing it on a number of students doesn't tell us a lot. Uh, but so anyway, so let's jump uh, then to the, the the next big problem because you see there hasn't been a lot of money. Well, David, I'd like to highlight one thing about the there okay, is one direct relationship between the city and CPS. So. Some CPS employees, administrators mainly, uh, administrators mainly, are members of the municipal employee benefit system, pension system that the city has. Uh -huh, right. And the city has historically funded all the contributions for those pension members. Uh, under the last couple of years under Lori Lightfoot, that shifted. They entered an intergovernmental agreement and now CPS is picking up some of the costs that it didn't cover before. Last year, it was picking up $175 million. It's scheduled to go up to over $300 million. So at a time when CPS is, you know, underfunded by $2,500 per kid, City of Chicago is now charging it something it didn't charge it before and costing CPS three, ultimately $300 million in change in operating revenue, which will make the shortfall obviously worse. So Brandon Johnson, I know, are very concerned about CPS and CPS funding. If he wanted to do something to benefit CPS, really the only direct lever he has from a financial standpoint is to change some of the terms of this intergovernmental agreement 
and reduce or eliminate the charge for pensions that the city is starting to make against CPS. But if he did that, then the city would need to be able to replace that revenue with its own revenue sources. So that's where the sticky wicket comes in. Uh, right. do, you, do you charge CPS the, the 300 million or do you find a way to raise 300 million for your corporate? Uh, yes. And that's, uh, it kind of leads us to, again, more specifically now the challenges that uh, mayor elect Johnson has, uh, I think you've said in some of your writings uh, that we're facing, uh, at least the corporate fund, we're facing a fiscal cliff. Um, and um, so that's one of the big things we want to talk about. But first, let's talk briefly about the um, quote, so-called gift that uh, Mayor Lightfoot um, recently announced and looking at the coming deficit, which she announced, which she described as a gift to Brandon Johnson. Um, I know you've, again, advised Chicago officials and others, but tell us about that and how much can we count on that? Um, it's good, much rather have it, but we still face the cliff. Yeah, so the good news is Chicago is looking at, before this announcement by Mayor Lightfoot, Chicago is looking at a year-to-year -year deficit between 2023 and, and the upcoming year for uh, first term of Brandon Johnson of over 580, really pretty much $600 million. Mm -hmm. That's a big chunk. But what happened was, and the mayor recently announced it, revenue grew by $554 million more than they anticipated. The primary bumps came from personal property lease tax revenue. That was about 170 million or so of it. And the rest was from the personal property replacement tax and their share of state income taxes, which were up by $441 million. So we need to talk about that because that revenue is probably going to come in in fiscal year 23 for the opening year of the administration of Mayor Johnson. But it's probably not sustainable. Overall, personal property tax revenue is up in Illinois over the last two years by almost 198% double. It jumped from 1.45 billion in 2020 to over $4.3 billion last year. So that's a huge jump. Now, people need to understand what the personal property replacement tax is because that's kind of a mouthful. Uh, the state of Illinois used to allow local governments to assess a personal property tax against business inventory equipment, those kinds of things. So rather than taxing the real estate or the building on the real estate, this allowed local governments to put a charge on things like inventory and equipment. Now in the passage of our 1970s constitution, they decided to get rid of the personal property tax and replace it with a tax based on corporate profits. Still a local tax, uh, but it's, it's, it's one that's now predicated on corporate profitability. Well, corporate profitability in the last couple of years have hit an all-time high. In fact, in 2022, they were up to 2.9 trillion with a T dollars. That's a, that's a 900 billion dollar increase just from 2019. That's that's monstrous. It's a 54 percent jump between April of 2020 and December of 2021. To give you some historical context. Corporate profits only grew by 11.4% from 1979 to 2019. 
So this is sort of uh, a unique period of time. And what happened was businesses ended up price gouging uh, as consumers went back to buying when the pandemic yeah. restrictions went down. So they took advantage. Well, Huh? Let me just note something here uh, in the larger picture uh, that Americans, I think, need to understand. They probably do inherently. But what you talk, remember, there's, there's a lot of this, which you're describing, of some enormous profitability of corporations. At the same time, we see at the federal level and we see it at the state level as well. We see a lot of some of the most uh, wealthy corporations not paying anywhere near their fair share. Uh, Anyway, that, that's very important in the long run uh, as we try to address equity issues. And Absolutely. it's also important here because, you know, you and I and others are working on tax fairness in Chicago. And there's been a lot of um, examples um, through the operations of a gentleman named Mr. Berrios when he was assessor. Uh, all these things where they give the, the very well off, in many cases commercial, uh, great breaks uh, kind of in return, not legally in return, but um, for many of the contributions that are given to elected officials from the lawyers. The bottom line is that's just an example of uh, there's enormous profit in many places in this country. A lot of people are doing very well, never done better in our entire history, and yet they don't always pay, pay their fair share. So that that just complicates the problem you're describing right now. But I, I interrupted you. Go right back no. to it. Yeah. So we're at a, a point where this record corporate profitability has generated record, record revenues from the personal property replacement tax, which is really a corporate income tax that goes to the local government. So it's not sustainable. And, and over time, what will happen, it won't fall off a cliff but it will moderate and then start sloping downwards. And so there's gonna be some negative revenue pressures on the city to replace what it, what it has seen in record growth in corporate personal property replacement tax revenue and, and share of state income tax revenue. And to, to Brandon Johnson's great credit, you know, when the field was narrowed to two, him and uh, Paul Vallis, Brandon Johnson was the only one of the two who was realistic about the city's fiscal condition. He said, look, to, to fund the kind of programming I'm gonna to want to put in to deal with our structural problems, the city's gonna need more revenue. And he was absolutely right when he said those things. I mean, Paul Vallis was basically telling the world, well, I'm gonna rely on my budget wizardry to solve the problems. And we have a word for that, uh, or at least a phrase for that and folks that do fiscal policy for a living is called smoke and mirrors. There is absolutely no real proposal by Dallas on, on anything to deal with the city's fiscal system. And at least Brandon Johnson put some real proposals on the table and recognized he could not do what he wanted to do. That is, you know, increase investments in things like housing and mental health and other social services. I think he had about $1 billion in total in new spending he wants the city to do. And this would be spending that would come through the corporate fund. You can't do that without new revenue. You can't do that without a revenue source that grows with the economy over time. And interestingly enough, even though the budget is only looking at about an $85 billion million shortfall in the coming year, there's no money in the budget for the coming year for things like the guaranteed basic income programs. 
that started under Lori Lightfoot. That was funded with ARPA dollars. That was about 31 and a half million bucks. That's not there anymore. There's some existing existing mental health programs funded at about $84 million that there's no ongoing revenue to cover. And uh, the city had a summer jobs program for disadvantaged youth funded really with private grants and contributions of 75 million. So Brandon wants to spend more on investing in these social services, which is laudable, uh, but he doesn't actually even have the revenue to continue funding the guaranteed basic income program, some of the mental health programs, et cetera, that were funded under Lori Lightfoot's administration. And so his focus on saying, gee, we're actually gonna need some more revenue to deal with our problems was the right one. Now, he also created his own challenge there. Because one thing he said, I know you're aware of this, David, you sent me a note about it via email. And that is he made an absolute pledge not to increase property taxes. Well, that's that's really not a good idea from a fiscal standpoint. And let me run through why that is. Uh, while the city doesn't utilize property tax revenue to really fund city services, it's the biggest component of its pension payment. So last year, uh, right. for the 2023 budget, $2.6 billion pension payment, $1.4 billion came from property taxes. The rest of it, 644 million came from corporate fund revenue. So that's revenue that could go to funding. Partners. I just want to, uh, things like I should slow you down and say, uh, let's say those numbers again. I want our listeners to understand how important this pension is. And it's kind of related. Yes, the mayor is providing a gift, but she said in that address that there are certain strings attached. They're particularly attached to pension. <laughs> you, you said something like over a billion dollars just in one year alone. What was that figure? Two point something? Yeah, last year's payment was 2.6 billion. That's yeah, just, just the pension payment. We, we appreciate pensions and so forth. Uh, but, and let me one, say one further note and I'll let you go ahead, is that, you know, we're always looking for equity, as you did in your evidence-based formula, et cetera. And I, I, again, I want people to know, you know, I'm one of these politicians that ended up with a pretty good pension, but my pension is not taxed in Illinois. And for all those judges who make now over $200,000 a year, and if they get 80% of that, I'll just do some quick math. We're talking about uh, all these judges uh, walking away with 180 thousand dollars a year of which they pay no income tax on that income to the state of Illinois. Uh, these are the kinds of political realities that people don't even know. And of course, we're not going to go into it too much here because these things are hot political items. For example, we would never want to force the vast majority of pensioners, you know, uh, folks who, who have the, maybe sometimes the less attractive jobs that walk away with a $30,000 pension or $35,000 pension. We don't want that, but you could set some limit and pensions over 50,000 or whatever, and you could have a small range. But think of it, uh, judges and other, um, quote, select people earning um, up to 200,000 or more and getting pensions in the $180,000 range, not paying a single dime 
in state income tax. So I just want, uh, I think it's important that people understand these things. Now go ahead because pension is such a critical part to what yeah. uh, kind of- Yeah, and I, I would say, David, while it would be the right thing to do to include some pension income in the state's income tax from a fiscal policy standpoint, and you have a significant number of your population at, at or approaching retirement age and pension income has never been taxed. So this is this is income that folks have never paid a tax on. And of the 41 states with an income tax, we're one of only three that excludes all pension income. So it's not the normal thing to do. All right. that said, uh, there is absolutely no political appetite in Springfield to change this. That even if you create a very high uh, exclusion for pension income, higher than the one you put on the table, I've put in proposals where the first $100,000 of your pension income is still uh, tax-free and you're just taxed on what's over that. And no, it's just sort of been dead on arrival. So the political right. reality like on that has, has just been ugly. Um, and, and, and so it would take a lot of organizing. And I think on the discussion over the fair tax, which was the attempt a year, a couple of years ago to get a graduated rate structure for our income tax in Illinois, failed and and if that fair tax proposal had passed voters refused to ratify it but if it had passed 97 percent of the taxpayers in illinois would have gotten tax cut and only the That's richest three percent would have paid more so it's really difficult to message on these kinds of proposals to get what's right done but that said you're right and from a fiscal policy standpoint you would have gotten an a in my class but the um, bottom line is it's hard to do politically so well, remember, the, the we're, always issue. Trying, hmm? we're always trying to look at the, I, I can't see you all the time here. Well, um, always trying to look at the equity and the right thing. Yes, it's unpopular. But remember, the, the reason that these things lose often is because we have a terrible campaign finance system created by right-wing Republicans, although backed in many cases by uh, Democrats as well, that, that basically allow um, free speech to be basically not free speech. If you got the money, you're a billionaire, you're whatever, and you can contribute massive amounts. That's how they win some of these battles. Like even losing, losing that what would have been a great, a great victory in Illinois with 97 percent of of the public benefiting. So I just want to connect all these things. Sure, we would but lose some of those things. Let's talk about the pension issue because I think that's really very poorly covered in the media mm -hmm. so a lot of and to to use some of your terminology and your focus a lot of sort of the right-wing anti-tax anti-government folks have consistently tried to lay the blame for our underfunded pension systems whether they're the cities or the states at the feet of unaffordably high or too generous benefits and there's i, I want to be very clear no data. No data to support that claim. None. The reason we have unfunded pension liabilities at the city and state level in Illinois is because for generations, the law governing the contribution that the public sector had to make into its pensions allowed them to woefully underfund them to the point that they drove up huge debt owed to the pension systems. And what's creating the problem now is the state decided, all right, we got to pay this debt back 
And mm -hmm. so they passed legislation that created ramps that is uh, ever increasing on a year to year basis payment obligations to try to pay back the debt that's owed to these pension systems. And these ramps are, are just un, uh, un sort of affordable, way backloaded. And they're really one of the core problems here. So the, the reason the Chicago pension payment is so high, 2.6 billion, the vast majority of that is paying back debt. It is not covering the cost of benefits. So people right. need to know that. And then, then you look at the revenue sources being used to cover it. So I do want, I'll go through those a little slower. Uh, I, I'm an Italian Democrat from the East Coast, so I talk fast, David. It's, it's, a, it's a problem. But 1.4 billion of that came from property taxes. 644 million from revenue that feeds the corporate funds. So if you think about that, if, 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 this, if the property tax component were higher, corporate fund revenue going to fund pensions could be lower, freeing up revenue to cover current services like mental health, affordable housing, et cetera. So, right. uh, and other things that fed it, uh, 266 million was diverted from the water and surtax revenue, and then the enterprise funds kicked in 303 million. So the bottom line is, when Brandon Johnson says, you know what? Uh, I'm absolutely going to keep property taxes flat. What that means is because this pension payment will grow and will grow substantially under the ramp over the next few years, it, it's really going to grow dramatically. Uh, an average of at least 47 million a year on a year to year basis over the next four years. But because the pension system's lost a bunch of money, I'm not going to get into that in the, in the last 12 months. Uh, that pressure could go up by as much as another hundred million per year, according to current city estimates. So you're going to have this ever increasing ramp to pay back pension debt. But you would have an answer. But you do, but you're going to hold down flat your property taxes, which is the biggest portion, 1.4 billion of your payment, which means the pressure on city revenues to fund the growth in this ramp goes up. And that takes away from your ability to take city revenue and invest it in the corporate fund and those services Brandon Johnson wants to fund through there. So that's right. why I think the pledge on the property tax is, is a little out of line. And it's a bad idea from a fiscal policy standpoint. In fact, uh, Mayor Lightfoot, people could say what they want about her, but she was a very sound fiscal steward for the city of Chicago. She got 13 bond rating upgrades while she was in office, three positive outlook upgrades. And, and every time you get an upgrade in your rating on your bonds, it, you know, it saves the city about $100 million uh, in interest costs. So she really was a good fiscal steward and she prepaid a lot of pension debt which was really good thing for her to do. Uh, but the bad news is now Brandon Johnson is coming in and he has a slightly different worldview and he's pledging to hold these property taxes flat. It, you know, that's just a bad idea. There was an analysis the city's own budget office did that said, look, if the city had just kept property taxes in pace with inflation, that has grew their property tax levy with inflation from 1977 through today, their levy would be the exact same that it is today. Remember, there were a couple of big increases under Rahm Emanuel, but they'd have had that revenue consistently over time so the city wouldn't have had to sold, sell off the Skyway. 
It wouldn't have had to sell off the parking meters. It wouldn't have to engage in those 33 scooping cost borrowings that ran up the city's debt load to where it is today, 73 billion, and kept kicking in, you know, interest costs down the road. So let, let me, uh, Scott, let me, let me just emphasize there. When you mention these things you just did that the Daily Administration did, uh, we have to remind everyone those plans cost us taxpayers hundreds and hundreds, in fact, billions probably when you put them both together, of dollars that could have been coming to Chicago that did not, just between uh, those two um, decisions alone, the Skyway. Um, so again, yeah. if you dig deeper, even though those politicians often are gone or not around anymore, uh, often bad government leads to enormous expenses to future people. Good government is ones with uh, the wherewithal, the guts, the political courage and so forth to try and handle things in a constructive way. Like we might argue that we're trying to do with the pensions, but did you want to talk about re-amortization here or not bother with that now? Well, I mean, it's the only way to solve the problem. It's, it, and I, I think what I would like to do on that one is maybe hold that conversation for another discussion where we could have some visuals because without actually seeing the change in the financing options, it's hard to just talk that one through. But basically what it does is it levels out the payment by putting a little bit more in upfront and going to a level dollar rather than a, a backloaded pension ramp. And that right. saves, you know, a few billion in taxpayer costs and still gets the pension system healthy. Okay, what what about, uh, and again, we're not going to go too much longer. Uh, we both know that these kinds of discussions, you know, particularly because we're, um, it's all um, oral as opposed to seeing pictures and so forth. You're right. Um, it can drive people to wonder what in the world is going on out there. Let's focus a little bit on some of the things that Brandon talked about in his tax fairness plan. Uh, some are likely to go nowhere, some might. Um, those things included things like the financial transaction. And if I got it right, even though I made it out of town a lot, the governor seemed to put the um, you know poo-poo on that. The employee head tax, which is something we had up till Rom cut it back, that's for certain major corporations have to pay a certain amount uh, for employees. The real estate transfer tax, uh, the jet fuel tax, are any of these things do you think um, uh, going to move forward? And if so, uh, if for the ones that don't, where does Brandon come up with the uh, revenue to do the, um, the initiatives he wants? Uh, well, we mentioned earlier for affordable housing and mental health and uh, youth activities. Yeah, so th there's so many challenges facing a mayor that folks don't understand. And so a lot of the revenue that uh, Mayor Johnson would like to raise does need state support for it to happen. The financial transactions tax, for instance, is one of those items which would place a dollar or two dollar surcharge on every security trading contract that ran through Chicago. You know, that is that is dead on arrival. There's it's funny, uh, State Representative Mary Flowers uh, puts that legislation in every couple of years or so. And one year it was in and I was speaking with the then chair of Senate Revenue and I said, well, I hear there's a few people, uh, there's a couple of people supporting this financial transactions test. 
<laughs> she looked at me and she said, who's the second one? And, 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 and you know, yeah. that's, that's sort of where that is. It, it really has no chance. And in fact, it, it's not good policy at the state or local level. It's too easy to evade and it, it, it leads to chicanery. I mean, if we wanted to do a financial transactions tax in America, we should do it at the federal level. And I would draft that legislation and then create a revenue sharing program with state and local governments like we had under Nixon, that liberal Democrat from way back when. But he also wants to, you know, broaden the city sales tax to include professional services. You know, once again, you got to get the state to approve that and, and the focus on professional services. I understand why Brandon wants to do that. That, that would be more high paying folks covering the cost. The problem is even states that have a very broad sales tax base don't tax professional services. What they tax is consumer services, haircuts, lawn care, bowling, that kind of stuff. And that's really what the state of Illinois should, should be taxing. But once again, he needs the state to pass that. His, he called it, I think the mansion tax was his, his bump up in the real estate transfer tax. And he really wanted to focus on high value properties. And I guess the design that uh, Mayor Johnson put on that, he thought it could raise about $100 million that has a chance. I mean, that one could have some political legs, some viability, as could the jet fuel tax that might raise, according to his estimates, 98 million. So there's a, there's a couple of things there, but not enough, I don't think, to really uh, come anywhere near funding the billion dollars in new programming he wants to put in place, deal with the revenue shortfall that he'd have with CPS if he wanted to relieve CPS of its obligations newly passed to fund some of the pensions that the city used to fund. That's a $300 million cost right there. And we haven't even talked about hiring in, you know, new police officers police to cover mm -hmm. uh, the missing positions. As, as of now, there's something like 1,400, 1,500 sworn position vacancies in the police department. Uh, to fill even half of those would cost, you know, if if they were all filled with rookie cops, that would cost about $58 million a year, but they won't be. If they were all, if, if you looked at the average uh, full-time equivalent position cost for police officers in Chicago uh, of about $110,000 a year in salary, the cost jumps up to about $78 million. And so that's that's money we sorely need to be investing. Uh, we really do have an issue with crime. Our crime rates are worse than New York. They're worse than LA. Uh, we really, we really have to do something about that. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, it's interesting that Brandon Johnson is trying to take a community approach to policing. That's a very good idea. It, it is one of those things that has been shown to have an impact, but you need to invest more, not less, into your police officer uh, system to, to go to a more of a community-based system. Okay, uh, yeah, Ralph, so I'm going to wind this down now, and let's wind it down by saying, woof, a lot of challenges. Let's talk about what we think Brandon Johnson, um, the elect Brandon Johnson, has going for him. Um, for example, uh, you know, we got the Democratic Convention coming to Chicago. They, it doesn't necessarily mean certain kind of funds, but it does mean um, the president, powerful people in both Washington, powerful people in both Springfield, I want to be make sure that that comes across as good as possible. 
what are some of the other good things? He seems to have a decent relationship with a lot of legislators, and we'll see how it comes across with the governor. But what are other things, either fiscal or political, do you think Brandon um, has going for him as he faces these challenges? Well, you know, I, my organization, we try to live in facts and data, so speculation on stuff like this is not our strong suit. I would well, I'm say... And that's what we do. Yeah, we yeah this, David, is something that you know far better than I. But I will tell you the initial impressions. Uh, number one, he's taking an approach where he's reaching out and trying to build bridges. And in a political system, really, the way you win is by bringing more folks into the tent. And, and it, to the extent that he utilizes his obvious charisma and, and his ability to work well with people to build coalitions at the state level, work Springfield in a, in a more collaborative and positive way, I think that that could lead to maybe some breakthroughs. Because, you know, Springfield's not going to be quick, even with Democratic control, to turn on the fiscal spigot and bail Chicago out. They're going to be thinking about their own problems at the state level. So really, it's going to be it's going to require Brandon Johnson to, to develop those relationships. And he's already taken some great steps in that direction, meeting with the governor, et cetera. I think second, I've appreciated the fact that Brandon Johnson has been very honest about the city's fiscal problems. He hasn't tried to candy coat it. He has said that they need new revenue. And he said that when he was running for office. And so that's, you know, most folks when they run for office, try to avoid saying that we need new revenue. I mean, you know that, David, you've seen that how many years, at least Brandon put it on the table. And I felt he put far more fiscally sound, even if they weren't going to happen, but fiscally sound types of proposals on the table than his competitor, Paul Vallis did, which is really uh, amazing given that Paul Vallis was trying to sell himself as the fiscally responsible candidate. I mean, really, when you looked at their proposals, uh, Brandon Johnson, uh, did a much better job in putting some meat uh, on the table that people can kick around than Paul Vallister. I think, you know, one of the other challenges that you always see for the mayor is on dealings with CPS. We've had some very contentious negotiations between, you know, CPS and the union at the CTU. And I think if Brandon Johnson takes a more collaborative approach there, uh, there's no reason uh, that you shouldn't have a more collaborative approach there. Maybe some of the political histrionics can be put to the side and there can be a better approach to designing a, 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 a workaround with, with CPS that has everyone feeling positive about moving forward and how they're working together. I, I think actually, you know, you look at this election and your, your perceptions on it, David, are, are going to be more insightful than mine. Let's just be honest. I'm, I'm a numbers policy geek. That's where I live. But I, but I think we saw more nuanced voting uh, in this mayoral election. You know, Paul Vallis ran this anti-crime, clean things up, fiscal conservative things that in a very simplistic way is a very popular thing to do said it wasn't going to raise any taxes and it was going to be tough on crime. Those are, those are hot button issues that generally get you support. Brandon Johnson is far more nuanced and the voters went for the more nuanced candidate. 
which means I think he's got some goodwill there that if he shows leadership and continues to build bridges and work collaboratively, sets a stage for him to have a very successful mayoral term. And, and, and you know, Lori Lightfoot, a lot of people complained that she wasn't, you know, easy to work with, but she did a lot of good things. You know, you can say what you want. She did a lot of good things, and especially from a fiscal policy standpoint. And so now I think Brandon is in a in a position where if he if he wants to be strategic and collaborative, he can he has the opportunity to move the city forward. Well, um, then I'm just going to mention a few uh, based on what you just said, a few things that I do think gives us some hope uh, in a in a tricky world that uh, the new mayor is going to face. Uh, for one, you mentioned Lori. There's a lot of things that Mayor Lightfoot did, like you say, that were pretty positive and constructive, particularly uh, in trying to uh, dramatically change the equity here to try and really deal with real equity in the city of Chicago. But there's a lot of things in the pipeline coming down. Um, it's kind of like if, if uh, Biden wasn't around a few years from now and these infrastructure programs come through, there'll be all sorts of people that had no real they didn't help at this at all, but they're going to benefit from it. I think there'll be those things that uh, Lori did that will benefit Brandon. I also think the nuanced voting that you mentioned is very, very important that we don't want to have the simple thing, police solve our, our problems. We don't want to blame the police for everything, but we can't assume it's that simple. Uh, Brandon had the guts to step out on that, um, but it's a long-term solution. So he'll have a chance to work on it. Another key factor is his age. Uh, and I would say because of what we're seeing so far, and it's very early to tell, I do think he will have an easier time, considerably easier time with the city council than Lori uh, did. It wasn't Lori's fault, but I do believe partly because the power of the CTU, partly because a number of folks allied with him ran for office, uh, probably more support among some of the legislators. Um, but I do think um, having a city council on, with your back. Now we'll see. Inaugurations May 15th. That's first city council meeting, I believe, is May 24th. And that's when everything's set, the rules. And, uh, and remember, for people who didn't follow this stuff long ago when I was much younger and Harold Washington was elected, that first city council meeting, despite all the hope and excitement, turned into a nightmare uh, as we didn't have the votes. And the mayor tried to quick gavel the meeting to an end, which electeds do all the time, but fast Avedoliak was fast at the switch at that point. Uh, he was the leader of the opposition and uh, the mayor did a quick vote. Okay, the eyes have it to adjourn, okay? Well, he ran up to the podium from his spot from the 10th Ward and said the meeting will continue because there was not a, there was not 26 or 25 votes to blah, blah, blah. And then that's when the council wars officially began and they set the rules that were miserable rules for anybody but themselves. They took all the committees. Um, if you were an expert on education, you for sure wouldn't be on the education committee, stuff like that, which made Harold's uh, first years horrendous. Um, but I, I don't think that's gonna happen at all with Brandon. There will be um, people complaining, but I think, when the council has your back more, um, can really help. Like Lori um, rarely lost a vote. 
uh, in her entire time. But the fact that they didn't have her back, that um, a whole series of aldermen were out to get her from day one. And every chance they got, they beat her up, even if it was lies, um, which don't seem to make a lot of difference these days. And uh, their friends in the press covered it the way Lori's enemies wanted. So I do think there's enough things there, not politically, I'm more hopeful uh, than the, the raw numbers and the analysis financially that you're talking about. Um, but often there's a way, particularly if somehow we can bring in a business community more successfully. Other, other big cities that we might say are face these same problems, they often do find ways if there's at least some of the enlightened members of the business community understand it's in their interest to help the mayor as to fight the mayor on some of these things. So uh, any final words from our uh, budget wizard here? No, I mean, you know, fiscal problems are always challenging for elected officials. They don't run fixed fiscal policy, right? People run for office because there are things they want to accomplish in their community. And Brandon Johnson is clearly in that mold. But that's 99.9% .9 of people run for elected office. And then you get there. And what you realize is if you have inadequate capacity on the front end, you'll get inadequate outcomes on the back end. So fiscal policy ends up driving so much of what you can or cannot do or accomplish during your term in office. And what I find hopeful about Brandon Johnson is he has honestly addressed the fiscal issues of the city of Chicago, even when running for office and put the concept of new revenue on the table. So I think that's a positive. And, and that's something to grow on. I think one of the challenges for Brandon Johnson is he's gonna realize very quickly, virtually every tax and fee available to fund local government is regressive. So finding progressive sources is just not an easy thing to do. The only taxes that can be progressive by design are pretty much your income tax. And that's if you have a graduated rate structure, which by constitution we cannot have in Illinois. And that's the estate tax, if you put a tax on very wealthy estates. And literally every other tax and fee takes a bigger bite out of a lower middle income family's pocket than a wealthy family's pocket. And that's just the reality of fiscal policy. So some judgments will have to be made about what's, what's the better thing to do for the community. Raise a little bit in taxes and invest in the community, which I think actually is nine times out of 10, the better thing to do economically. or keep taxes flat and not have the resources we need to invest. Well, okay. Uh, I want to thank you very much, Ralph Martyr, uh, who advises even presidents and governors and mayors, and now he's advising us um, and advising the new mayor as well. Uh, so we thank you very much um, for our podcast today. And oh, it's an we, honor to be on a program with you, David, anywhere, anytime. Anytime. One of the greatest of all great Americans, Mr. David Orr. Oh, <laughs> I, I, does that mean I got to contribute to your organization? <laughs> Absolutely. Make the check Absolutely. out. Fully tax deductible, buddy. That's it, right. It's a bipartisan group. Okay. Thanks a lot, Ralph. Thank you, David.